uh, I would like to begin by uh, throwing it open to you first and uh, learning more where your heads are at at this moment. So uh, if anybody has a uh, question, um, something they'd like to raise at this point, uh, let's, let's begin with that. Anybody want to make a comment, ask a question of any sort? Someone asked me just before we started if I would touch issues of cultural diversity. I will uh, in a different context later. Uh, but any comment or question? Yes, please. You were talking yesterday about brain function. I just kind of wondered if you were going to deal at all with uh, the triune brain theory uh, that McLean is... Uh, now, I'll touch that a little um, when I talk about the data that is, yes. Yeah, okay. I will touch that. Any other comments? Okay, then here's what the... Uh, you have a question? Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could say anything more uh, about... You mentioned something about family business, and it was in the context last night of, uh, I think, not being able to find a leader, and you said, especially in a family business, that it would be difficult then to you know, work with that family or something. I don't know if that's what I was pointing to. Okay. All, all I was getting to is all... All the problems that you find in any kind of family, the problems of fusion and differentiation, you can also find in businesses. When you have a family business, everything just gets exacerbated. Okay. That's, that's all I was uh, trying to say. I was wondering if you could say something about using this methodology in premarital counseling with people. Premarital, all right. Um, let me see. I, I put in a semi-commercial now, and uh, I'll go back to it later. I put on, the, uh, on either end of the uh, platform here... Um, a letter that went out, which goes out every year, went out about six weeks ago, two, two months ago actually right now, which describes the seminars that I have in Washington. I have a set of seminars for clergy, and there's a set of seminars primarily for non-clergy. The non-clergy people who come are educators, consultants, administrators, therapists, uh, healthy professions generally. And these seminars meet three times a year for three successive days each time, so it's a nine-day program. Uh, the program actually goes on more than the first year, and many people come back continuously just to stay in touch with the thinking processes and then they come back twice a year and the letter explains it um, I still have some openings left particularly in section 2 there are two sections for anyone who would be interested in it and then there's a space on it if you can't make it this year but want to be on the mailing list just to send that part back so the letter is, that's on either end here is for clergy and then there's another small um, little kind of brochure glossy brochure uh, I don't have too many of those but so only take that if you're non-clergy or want to give it to a non-clergy person. So the letter is for the clergy, and the other brochure is for other people who might be interested in what we call the professional three-time seminar. Uh, anyway, that's one way of staying in touch with these processes. The second is I have a collection of reprints. And everywhere I go, I tell you that there's about 10 or 12 different articles, essays, chapters that I've written in the past on this. Uh, one of them contains, there's a chapter in somebody else's anthology on the application of this to premarital counsel. Uh, so that's in the collection of reprints. Uh, the collection costs $30.00. Oh, and um, I'm trying to think. Well, I guess, I guess I'll include it. If you want it, um, there's, there's one that I haven't been including. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. Two years ago, at Dialogue 94, I did this presentation for 2,000 pastoral counselors. And I was, it was a kind of a keynote. And I wanted to say a lot of outrageous things. So I did it in the form of an interview with the first creature in history uh, to give advice to a married couple. <laughs> so it's an interview with Satan in which I managed to put everything that uh, uh, I wanted to say in his mouth. Um, I haven't been distributing that wide, widely yet because I don't know yet what I want to do with it. But this is a group that I think would like it. So what I would say is if, uh, if you order the collection of reprints for $30, uh, just write somewhere on the check or something. Satan also. And, uh, 
It's about 20 pages long, single space, so it's, it's a decent size thing. It takes an hour to read it. Um, now, I will get the mailing list of everybody here, so when my book comes out, which is a year away, you all get information on it. But this summer, Guilford is going to put out a videotape for training leaders, and it comes with a study guide. And I'll, I, you know, I'll get that out to you also, too, if I have the mailing list. And it's a half-hour uh, training tape where somebody took a videos of me doing a workshop, something like this, with some of the major ideas. And um, uh, it will come with a study guide, which contains many of the ideas going into the book. So there's, there's that videotape, there's the book itself that will come out, there's a collection of reprints, there's the seminars. And a couple of people ask me theological questions. I don't see myself as a theologian, but... Um, the Urban Institute has a videotape of a presentation I did called Family Process and Process Theology, in which I tried to take five or six major ideas from the whitehead Hartshorn axis and put it together with some of Murray Bowen's major ideas, and uh, it comes with a study guide, and people who've used it, they can't use it all in one shot. And it's a way of getting theology in the back door uh, when it appears that you're talking about families. So those are the various things you could, you could follow up with. And... Um, as far as that specific question about premarital counseling, it all clicks. And um, the basic idea is if you can get people who are getting married to do genograms and look at issues in their family of origin, it's often possible to spot when in the future life of that couple they're likely to have problems. You, see, you begin to see patterns over the generations. And intriguingly, if you do that with, a, with an engaged couple, each one is incredibly interested in the other one's family life. Yeah. This is a theological question. Um, You've spoken uh, extensively about the need to define self, and that defining self is on the side of wellness and health. Uh, in Hebrew scripture and in Christian scripture, uh, there are extensive texts that relate to the idea of the laying down of self. Uh, or the giving away of self on behalf of others, mutual servants, that that is the way uh, to wholeness. Uh, and I was wondering how we might uh, uh, not excise those texts, but we might rescue them so that we can teach on them and preach on them uh, without encouraging uh, uh, you know, the unhealthy giving away of self. Uh, what, what is the path to integrating those two, those two views? How do they fit together? If they do. I've only got five more hours here. <laughs> I have uh, a way to begin with that one. Someone came up to me the other day. I, don't, I can't remember anymore now. I, I've just been in Grand Rapids for two days. And now, yeah, I don't remember necessarily what I said when anymore. Oh, whatever. But someone came up to me with a similar theological question, and was quoting to me a statement from Jesus about the giving up of self or making oneself small or something like that. It was in the elevator, now I remember, and someone else in the elevator was immediately pointed out that there were other statements by Jesus that went in the other direction. And it just seems to me that... My view has always been that everybody preaches their religion hyphen their own last name, and we each hear those values loudest in our tradition, which pretty much already conform to the way we've been working at life. Uh, and the way, I mean, every religious tradition I know has so many possible interpretations. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Open Institute, again, I can't remember how many years ago, this was five or six years ago, published an article uh, where somebody listed what he thought were all the self-differentiating statements of Jesus. So that exists somewhere in the Old Institute bulletin. I think it's what you want to hear. I think everybody in this room is imaginative enough 
uh, take the ideas of their tradition and put them in a, in a way that supports uh, the approach they want to take. Uh, it seems to me worthless for me to get into a situation of interpreting Christianity or Jesus or, or priests or friend of mine who's Catholic has been teaching me a lot about early church fathers and things they've been saying. And it seems to me that some of the same divisions that show up in psychotherapy today uh, showed up in, uh, in church fathers and early monks and so on. Uh, those divisions are always there. Um, you know, what do you do with that thing and all those writing sermons about you should leave your parents and become one flesh? And here I'm talking about differentiating flesh. Um, I don't know, I'll just go back and say there's enough in every tradition to interpret it the way you want. Yeah. Well, one of the things maybe that's a way out of it all is the notions of altruism that are coming out of biology, starting with E.O. Wilson and sociobiology. And the issue is, how could a trait like self-destruction be preserved by evolution? In other words, if you stay with just with genes, then the genes that survive are those that help the organism survive. And yet, altruism seems to exist in all forms of animal life, or mostly most forms of animal life. And the, the answer that's been given to that is that um, evolution also works through the survival of groups, not just the survival of individuals. And therefore, on some level, the loss of an individual, if it's in the service of the preservation of the group, could be a trait that evolution selects. Now, um, that certainly suggests uh, the idea. I guess what somewhat it would be, what, what's the difference between a well-differentiated suicide and a reactive fuse suicide? That would be a way of doing it. How do you work that through? Yes. Uh, by way of a very simple and brief comment in response to Greg, um, one of the things I've certainly become aware of over the years is you can't give away a self that you don't have. <laughs> yeah, and so I would think that a lot of what you're saying is very uh, compatible with the notion of laying down oneself or giving up oneself. Uh, but you have to start with developing that self or differentiating that self, otherwise there's not much to get. Okay. There's a character in a Philip Roth novel who's wondering about killing himself, and I think, says at some point, suppose after you jump, your head clears and you realize you're way out of your problem. <laughs> okay, here's what I want to do the rest of the day. Um, First, I want to go back to this issue of the chronic anxiety in American society. I touched it briefly. I'm going to develop it much more fully. Then I'm going to take what I called the three equators yesterday, which is the focus on data rather than maturity, on empathy rather than responsibility, and on the pathology of self rather than the life-giving strengths of self. And I'm going to develop each one of those ideas more. I don't think I'll get it all in before lunch. I'll finish it up after lunch, and then at the end, the last part of the day, we're going to, we're going to shift a half hour from the end of the day to the lunchtime. In other words, your original schedule said lunch till 2. We really don't need that. We'll go lunch till 1.30 and stop at 4 rather than 4.30. So we'll take that half hour and put it the other place. And I will end the day by showing you another videotape 
working with a family, and the idea, the major idea will be, how do you as a counselor or therapist stay out of societal anxiety in working with a couple? It's a couple about 60 years old, a few of you have seen this, in which the grandmother accuses her husband of molesting their granddaughter. And from my point of view, it's a false issue all the way, and I try not to let that issue obscure what I think are the real problems in the family. And uh, it will be a demonstration of, uh, of not getting caught up in all of society's anxiety as a way of dealing with the family. Um, but to begin with, um, I'm going to talk about what I call the nationalization of the neurosis. At first glance, medieval Europe seems to be way, way behind us. Our technology is so far beyond them, our artistic expression is so far beyond them, our religious diversity, everything we do. In fact, the word medieval has become a word for superstition. It's a synonym for backwardness. But I have some question that despite all our technological advances, humanity has advanced that much. In fact, if humanity had changed that much, we wouldn't understand Shakespeare. If humanity had changed that much, we wouldn't understand the two testaments. There must be something extraordinarily similar that has been going on ever since. As I see it, American society today is in very much the same kind of doldrums that medieval Europe was before World War II, before, um, before Columbus discovered America. And I think there are some intriguing similarities. Uh, I think um, you have, for example, in that period back in medieval times, a, a movement toward concentrations in groups. And that's precisely what's going on. Movement toward cities. Move movement toward concentration groups. You have, you had then the Black Plague, and you have now AIDS, which nobody has said, and this is not meant disparagingly, is almost another Black Plague in the way it has uh, uh, developed and erupted. You have this major shift in communication so that Gutenberg and the printing press is replaced by Steve Jobs and the computer, a handheld computer. You have just the same degree of pessimism about the future, despite the fact that it's on the verge of technological advancement. And as I said yesterday in showing you those diagrams, I think American society, and maybe it's all of world society, has gone into an aggression. And the characteristics of that regression, I mentioned five of them. I mentioned reactivity, hurting, a quick fix mentality, blame displacement. And I said that all four of those contribute to the fifth, which is lack of well-differentiated leadership. And conversely, lack of well-differentiated leadership will promote those four. They are, all of them, regressive. 
by which I mean, rather than being evolutionary, they are counter-evolutionary. And what I'm going to do is take each one now and show you how it is counter-evolutionary. I'm going to describe it the way it shows up in a family, and then I'm going to describe its manifestations in American society today. The first one, reactivity. This is counter-evolutionary because one of the major concepts in evolution, one of the major basic ideas that has made civilization possible is the regulation of instinctual drive. Freud used that as the basis for neurosis. He said we were re repressing our instincts and that led to neurosis. That you couldn't have civilization without neurosis. Whether or not that's accurate or not, what is accurate is you couldn't have civilization without some kind of regulation of one's instincts. In other words, repression of instinct is not the only alternative. He eventually wound up with sublimation as a way of dealing with it. Uh, modern biofeedback has shown that there is such a thing as self-regulation of those instincts. Well, the highly reactive family is not aware of that. E.O. Wilson in Sociobiology said all societies have three characteristics, whether they're animal or human. And those three characteristics are cooperation, cohesiveness, and altruism. The chronically anxious family does not contain those three factors. The chronically anxious family is highly reactive. It's as though all people are living in a feeling plasma. They bounce off one another like billiard balls, and they tend to be child-focused. One of the characteristics that follows from that is a loss of playfulness. Chronically anxious families are deadly serious. In fact, seriousness is one of the keys to how anxious any system is at any time, the extent to which it's lost its capacity to be playful. The constant reactivity eventually is sent out of the family into society, and it will show up in all institutions, in the church choir, in the synagogue religious school, in traffic, in PTA meetings, at a cooperative swimming pool or condominium so association, in any office, a place of business, in traffic, and in society itself. And what the effect is, is that Sirius is up that system also. As soon as a chronically anxious family starts acting out in any part of society, it will Sirius up that part of society, whether it's a church or synagogue, a library, or any club, any institution. The effect on leaders is that leaders lose the desire to lead. The system becomes leaderless because it sabotages all leaders with their constant responses, their constant reactions, and the leaders lose their will, and they lose their desire for expressing initiative. So that what you could add is, those people in the pool of leadership that might arise from it, duck. 
they avoid it. They don't seek office. That's the effect on leaders of a chronically anxious, reactive, regressed system. How does that show up in American society today? Well, my favorite example is what happened in the Lutheran Church not far from here in Minnesota, two years ago, I guess it was, around Thanksgiving, where a major uh, paper, draft paper, was produced on sexuality. <laughs> and uh, it was not for the public yet, and it was passed around to the leaders. But somebody leaked it to the press, who uh, immediately headlined the story with Lutherans favor masturbation. <laughs> if they had least said in a committed relationship, it might have been okay. <laughs> the uh, Lutheran headquarters got 22,000 phone calls in a four-hour period. Okay? Now, that's not a Lutheran phenomenon. That's not a Christian phenomenon. In a highly energized emotional plasma field, every institution will just go that much haywire in its vulnerable area. That's what happens. You could think of it, you could think of society as a gas fume filled room. If someone strikes a match in a gas fume filled room, you would blame the striker of the match. But people ought to have the right to go around, around striking matches. It isn't the striking of the match that causes the explosion, but the atmosphere. The atmosphere is volatile in America today, and any group can be set off real quickly. What goes along with it is that in anxious families, people take you positions rather than I positions. It's constant ad hominem retorts, constant attacks on one another. You did this. You caused me to do this. You're at fault for such and such a problem. Thank you. Um, never, you know, you're just like your mother. The answer to that, by the way, the next time your husband says to you, you're just like your mother, is, I thought that's why you married me. <laughs> that same kind of ad hominem response shows up all over America today. A term like chauvinist, for example. The fact that somebody is a chauvinist doesn't mean their statement is wrong. You can't prove that somebody is wrong by saying something about their personality. Ideas are wrong through the criteria of validity, not because of the nature of the person who says it. And normally, people resort to a hominem diagnosis of people when they themselves are empty. By the way, you will note that people psychoanalyze one another in a family or in a work system only when they want to pick on their bullet points. I've never seen anybody psychoanalyze someone else when they wanted to praise them. So that the whole thing has been perverted to a uh, hostile use. In all events, in society today, this dire emotional state has serious up the snits of all zealots. 
and it affects everyone anywhere. The regressive effect is on all leaders in any system, and it discourages them from wanting to go ahead. To give one story on this. In the New York Times Magazine section two years ago, a woman who is an attorney, who is about as, um, I don't know what word to use, as flagrant a feminist as you could get, wrote an article attacking pornography and saying censorship should be permitted here in violation of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And she attacked in an autonomous way anyone who would disagree with her, saying that they were disloyal. Well, a friend of mine goes all the way back to the Hollywood Ten. He defended some of the Hollywood Ten back in that McCarthyite hysteria. And he also defended Ginsburg in Eros Magazine. You remember Eros Magazine, which came out about 15 years ago, and Ginsburg was uh, sending this magazine out from Intercourse, Pennsylvania, and it was upsetting everybody. <laughs> what he did then today would be a comic book. You know, it just was nothing. Anyway, he went to jail. And this same friend of mine, who's always been on the side of civil liberties, defended him. Well, when he reads this magazine article attacking the First Amendment, he composes a letter in his head all the way to the office saying that after he defended Ginsburg, he was more convinced about First Amendment rights, not less. But he gets to the office and he doesn't go through with the letter and says, who needs all those phone calls? What I'm getting to is, he was never dissuaded by the McCarthyites who called him a traitor. All of that stuff that went on back there in the 50s, he stood up to it no matter what people accused him of in terms of treason. But that was easier for him than dealing with all the reactivity that can get going in a chronically anxious society. And this is my point, that chronic anxiety and the constant reactivity it creates can produce a totalitarian society faster than a dictator. It will be dissuasive of individuality. Now that leads to the second one. Herding, H-E-R-D-I-N-G. It is also counter-evolutionary. It is also regressive. Why? Because the key to evolution has been adaptation toward strength, not toward weakness. And the critical issue in herding families is adaptation to the immaturity. What happens in a herding family is togetherness becomes the overall important value with the result that in the strangest way, the herding family will adapt to its troublemaker and kick out its well-differentiated person. The herding family will organize itself around the troublemaker. 
whether the troublemaker is a gambler, a drinker, a pervert, it just doesn't matter. The hurting family will go out of their way to do it. You know, I don't know if you've read about this family that finally brought the evidence about the Unabomber. The tremendous soul-searching they went through for six months to a year about having to report on one of their own kin. And uh, undoubtedly it's going to be a movie, you know? But I hope that movie will eventually deal with the great struggle these people had to go through to finally decide that even though this was their kin and a beloved brother or son or uncle or whatever, if they didn't, more people were going to be killed. And they finally turn over the evidence. Well, they had to go against the hurting instinct that's in any family. The hurting instinct makes for family. But again, there's a difference between a well-differentiated hurting family and a totally fused hurting family. And what the effect of chronic anxiety is, is to move the continuum over toward the undifferentiated fusion in togetherness rather than towards the well-differentiatedness in togetherness. Now, um, my favorite story on this occurred in terms of society. Well, I mean, I guess I should add that the effect on leaders is that leaders become less decisive. The word decisive, the English word decisive, comes from a Latin root chitera, meaning to cut, as shows up in precision, incision, recision, decision. Decision is literally to cut away. In other words, when you make a decision, you have to give something up. Now, if you are caught as a leader in a family where the togetherness principle is overall, it becomes very difficult to cut something away. It becomes very difficult to give something up. It becomes very difficult to take a stand where you might lose members. Therefore, the hurting family does not produce decisiveness. That's the effect on its leaders. There's another way of putting it. Most of the decisions we make in life turn out to be right or wrong, not depending on how prescient we were before we made the decision, but on how we function after we make the decision. All right? Retrospectively, if you look back in your life, most of the decisions that you think today were good decisions had a lot to do with how you functioned after you made the decision. But you see, the hurting instinct, the reactive instinct, puts down self to such an extent that people lose confidence in their ability to deal with life, and that's another reason they become indecisive. To be decisive, you have to have confidence in your ability to deal with your decision. I find this, by the way, very useful in helping people who are in a quandary about a decision, and they're trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong, 
and we're plucking daisies. Today, people don't pluck daisies to decide whether or not somebody loves them. They pluck daisies to decide whether or not to leave their spouse. Back and forth, back and forth. Should I, shouldn't I? Most of the decisions we make, and I think it's helpful to people to realize this, most of the decisions you make in life turn out to be right or wrong, depending on how you function. And what that also means is you could have made either decision and turned out right, depending on how you dealt with your life afterwards. How does this show up in chronically American society? Well, the first, I think, is the fear of taking politically incorrect statements. University professors used to be, university presidents used to be known for taking important statements and being molders of public opinion. Today, the molders of public opinion are constantly scared to be put out there. They are caught up in the hurting instinct of society. The adaptation to an immaturity is everywhere. Here are different examples from society. First is language usage. The term abusive is just has been abused. It has replaced terms like nasty and objectionable. If somebody makes a nasty or objectionable remark, that's one thing. And you can say, I didn't like it. It was distasteful. But to say the remark was abusive is to suggest that you were hurt by the dint of the words entering your ears. That was an unbelievably victim-like attitude toward other people's language. If our immune systems responded that way to insults, we wouldn't make it past birth. Clearly, when you are insulted, a lot of that has to do with the response of the organism. A lot of it has to do with the way you yourself reacted. So that the word object, the words abusive and the words objectionable just deny the response of the organism and make it sound like, um, well, one of the ways I deal with this now, when people tell me they're hurt by something I said, is to say to them, well, you may be hurt, but you weren't damaged. Somehow, a distinction has got to be drawn there between people feeling pain and whether or not it was really harmful to them. I spent a whole day in court watching Different people come up before the judge, and they all took the medicine. They were petty things, mostly traffic, but sometimes a little bit of thievery. And it could have been a banker or a lawyer, clergyman. It could have been a physician. It could have been a housewife. And they all took their punishment. And then up comes there, these irresponsible people in their 20s or 30s, who are doing nothing to contribute to society, who are before the judge because they didn't do what the judge told them to do the first time. And when the judge gives them a new sentence, they argue with the judge. They bargain with the judge. The professional people didn't bargain with the judge. The housewife didn't bargain with the judge. 
But the most remarkable thing is the judges bargained back. <laughs> and one of them looked to me afterwards, in a society like today, we don't want to be perceived as harsh. By the way, an interesting survey just showing up in New York City is major crime in New York City has gone down severely and it's being attributed to the fact that the police are letting nothing go. They will pick everybody up for every little violation they can. The result is, this also gives them an excuse to look for drugs and guns. The effect of that is, the common irresponsible member of society, having heard about that, is much more reluctant to carry a gun. And this has come about because of much more attention to this and not looking the other way. Welfare. In a large southern city, a major church had a bread line, as you used to call it, free food. The minister says, this is right. We should tie it in to their being responsible members of society. So let us get a list of things these people should do. And we will give them food, provided they sign up for one of these things to help the community. There were people in his church that almost quit the church, tried to get him fired, and so on. They were so reactive to that notion of trying to force the responsibility. As I think I mentioned yesterday, there was a religious denomination, maybe I didn't mention it, religious denomination decides to spend $50 million on its 500 most troubled ministers. They come to me and say, how would you spend the money? And I say, why would you put it into your 500 most troubled ministers? Put it into your 500 best. And they said to me, we could never raise the money for that. <laughs> now that is really a metaphor of society. And as I think I mentioned, we spend money for the disadvantaged children in the school system at a thousand to one, the ratio of spending money for the advantaged children. That is a society organizing itself around its dysfunctional members. That is a society adapting to immaturity. That is a society throwing out its own strengths. That is as counter-evolutionary as you can get. And I'll put it together with one final story on this. I do a presentation in Kansas City one Sunday afternoon, a year ago. About 500 people from all walks of life, all faiths, on the idea I presented before that you don't need dictators to have a totalitarian society. That if you have weakness enough in the leadership, that weakness in the leadership will also produce. In other words, not only, I never thought of putting it this way, not only autocratic and authoritarian leaders can produce a totalitarian society, poorly defined weak leaders will produce a totalitarian society. Right. So here's what happens that afternoon. 
having done a presentation on many of the major ideas I have just presented to you. I finish my talk, it takes about two hours, there's a panel. And the panel is to respond to people online in front of a microphone. Two lines, and they were long lines, and here's the panel down here, and all in the middle of the panel. It gets to a point that uh, somebody asks a question about how he can take his art and apply it to the Holocaust, and he's having difficulty doing that. And the panel responds in a whole bunch of ways, and I say, maybe the problem here is you try to turn your art into a spade, you dig with that instead, if you would just let your own soul express itself, that art is primarily an expression of individuality, then maybe it would work rather than trying to propagandize your work. And I think I mentioned this yesterday, as has showed up in Marxist art, art, all kinds of art that gets what is called social realism where it's social realism rather than the aesthetic creativity. Well, I will sooner say that than a woman in the audience who married to one of the members of the panel runs up and grabs the microphone and says, I cannot stand by and listen to this chauvinist diatribe on women. And off she goes and gives 10 minutes, well, that's not fair, Three, four minutes. <laughs> Oration. The panel starts responding to her and assuaging her and pointing out that is not what all I said and so on and so forth. They asked me my response and I absolutely refused to even respond to her. And then afterwards I said, you know, we just watched. It didn't occur to me immediately, but after they said, we just watched happen here just what I was talking about. Because this woman was able to take over the entire system, not because of anything I said, not even because of her, but because the leader of the panel didn't show her up. The leader of the panel, a very nice person, a university president, he could have said to her, Madam, you have a right to your expression, and if you will kindly take a position online, then fine, you'll get a chance to express yourself. He could have gone further. He could have said, Madam, you're the one being abusive. You're being abusive of the panel, and you're abusive of your fellow citizens standing online. But he couldn't do that. He was more concerned about what he thought was the togetherness in the system. Um, this for me is a remarkable, this experience was for me a remarkable metaphor of uh, what goes on in society where um, all somebody has to do is scream loud enough, um, look hurt, that's what it is. All somebody has to do is come on hurt, and society will adapt to that person. That is the key to a regressed society. Adaptation to the people who are hurt. The third one. Oh, I guess there was one other thing to add, which is the opposite. It comes from John Madden, the sports announcer. 
<laughs> One day, he was talking about the coddling of athletes. And he said, you know, when I was a coach, if people came to me and said, the quarterback is throwing the ball too hard, I didn't say to the quarterback, throw the ball softer. I said to the quarterback, you throw it as hard as you can, and I'll get you receivers who can hang on to the pass. If people complained that the punter kicked it too far and they couldn't get down and cover it, he said, I didn't tell the punter not to kick it so far. I said, you kick it as far as you can, and I'll get people who can cover the punt, and so on. And it was a marvelous example of switching that whole thing of adaptation to strength rather than toward immaturity or weakness. Number three, what I call blame displacement. It seems to me that a key to evolution has been a growth, a growth producing response to challenge. Evolution is the environment that rewards the response to challenge. But blame displacement is the opposite. Blame displacement, instead of responding to challenge, avoids challenge. Our immune systems grow because of response to challenge. The key to survival is response to challenge. It is not a cloistered virtue life. But the chronically anxious family that has gone into a regression blames instead of accepting challenge. They blame one another for anything. And they blame outside sources. So the chronically anxious family is quick to be litigious. It is quick to sue. My own view is litigiousness is a middle-class form of violence. And it's my guess that the same families that in lower class produce violent crimes in society, in middle class produce litigious people. People who are going somewhere with their life don't have the time to be litigious. People who wish to express, sure there are some exceptions, but people, I mean there are situations where you were damaged really and uh, maybe you deserve uh, some financial uh, return for that because of what you've lost. But the degree of litigiousness that goes on in our society, what we're seeing around tobacco, for example, where for years people have known the truth about it. My best one yet is what I read in the papers the other day of a woman who fell out of the upper deck of a sports stadium. She fell about 30 feet, broke a bunch of bones, and she's suing the architect of the stadium for not making the railings higher. Now, that seems to me the ultimate in um, not taking responsibility for where you're going, where you're walking, what you're looking at, and so on. What happens in the chronically anxious family that is blaming, that is regressed, is they will have pet displacements. It might be the child, it might be an in-law, it might be an ex. By the way, what I'm now telling all women is, remember that um, every man's ex was his mother. Every man's ex was his mother. Ex-spouse, ex 
whatever. In all events, they will get together and focus on some person outside the system if they don't focus on someone in the system. I like to say that nothing I say is more than 70% true. This one is 100. In any church or synagogue, if you have members of that congregation who are chronically picking at the minister, there is a major family problem that is being displaced. That's 100% true. It doesn't even have to be at the minister. The, the displacement into churches and synagogues and school systems of irresponsible families is just remarkable. And that's where also the child becomes the conduit of that displacement. One of my favorite examples here is what occurred in a small town in which at a daycare center for Halloween, they showed the movie Poltergeist. But they warned all the parents in advance. And they got permission from all the parents. And they said to the parents, we're going to show this, so don't send your child or whatever. Well, this one kid goes and sees Poltergeist, goes home. She's five years old, and she can't sleep. And she can't sleep for weeks and months. And she's always in the parents' bed and upsetting them. So they send the kid to therapy. And the therapist says it was because of the movie Poltergeist. And they wind up suing the daycare center because the parents can't get sleep. Now that's a marvelous example, again, of parents being unable to take stands and define themselves. Here's the key idea that the chronically anxious, regressed family doesn't deal with. It's related to a new concept in physics called self-organized criticality. Self-organized criticality. And the idea is this. When something impacts a system and causes an avalanche, a catastrophe, a regression, something, the degree of the avalanche, the degree of the catastrophe, is not simply proportional to the intensity of the impact. It's related to the way the system had been organizing itself to that point. And the major model they use is a sand pile, a simple little sand pile in which they let the sand pile build up one grain at a time and finally, one more grain lands on the sand pile, and there's an avalanche of sand. And they point out, it isn't one more straw on the camel's back. It is rather the way the sand pile had been organizing itself that makes it vulnerable to going in that direction after the impact. And they then related it to the dying out of the dinosaurs. They related it to um, um, sudden breaks in the stock market. They didn't relate it to heart attacks. They didn't relate it to cancer. They didn't relate it to a whole other, a lot of other things that could also be the result of the way a system, a family, a human organism had been organizing itself over the years. What that means, in effect, is if you take 10 little children age 10 who are raped, the effect of that rape or molestation will not be proportional to the severity of the incident. It will have a lot to do with the way the family had been organizing itself to that point, 
And that includes the way it had been led to that point, and that includes how the family will then respond to the event. And to the extent that family responds to that event in one of two opposite directions, ignoring it or going on a campaign forever against all racists, the family's response will traumatize it far more than the event. In other words, I'm suggesting to you traumatization is not in the event, it's in the response of the organism. Well, how much more can you come up four square on the side of responsibility and on the side of not displacing blame? What happens is this. To the extent families respond well to trauma, they grow from it. To the extent they don't, they get stuck by it. Trauma is like programming, but we're not really dealing with lifeless, non-responsive breadboards full of microchips. We're dealing with people who can make choices and have a variety of possible responses open to them. The effect on leaders is leaders don't want to have to deal with all the flack. Leaders don't want to be vulnerable in such a society where there is so much blame displacement. I had a man, an attorney, who worked his way through major problems in his law firm and in his own family. And I had been seeing him for maybe four years, not every week, but not even every other week. But he just stayed in there with the coaching. Now, when he was a kid, he'd been a Golden Gloves champ. And one day I said to him, I'll bet the reason you've been able to hang in there is because your boxing experience taught you how to take a punch. And he said to me, you got it all wrong. It isn't being able to take a punch, it's loving it. That's a critical issue in the repertoire of a leader. It is when you get the punch, instead of feeling hurt, upset, see there it is. You can't be a leader if you buy into this victim stuff. If, on the other hand, you will perceive that punch as a sign that you're doing pretty good, that reverses everything. How does this show up in the greater American family today? I think the major way is anti-incumbency. The, the displacement of all blame onto leaders. When the Republicans swept into Congress two years ago, I turned to my wife and I said, it's going to reverse itself in a very short period of time because we're not dealing with issues here. We're dealing with the displacement phenomenon of a chronically anxious society. And last night I was talking with my wife about some articles in the newspaper that was saying that very thing. I had forgotten I'd said it and she reminded me I'd said it then. And I said, it's not a prescience on my part, it's not a brilliance on my part, it's Bowen theory. It just fits. And with the writing I've been doing about chronically anxious societies, there it is. It's what I've seen go on in families, that blaming of leaders, that displacement phenomenon. Well, it's not just politicians. It's, of course, all clergy. I've been 
And it shows up, I'll tell you where else it shows up, it shows up in revisionist history. All the attacks on Columbus, on Pasteur, on Picasso, on Freud, on Churchill, they all have something in common. They pick out something in the personality of the person and attack them and try to show the clay feet, and all of that is irrelevant to their deeds. Even baseball players like Ty Cobb. The emphasis all the time on what was wrong with their personality, which is totally irrelevant to what they contributed to life. You'll note that revisionist history focuses on personality. Revisionist history focuses on motivation. That is part of this larger anti-incumbency phenomenon. The attack on leaders. I'll just read straight to you. Over the last 10 to 15 years, I have witnessed a tremendous increase in the collective reactivity of religious congregations to their ministers, irrespective of gender or belief. As America's emotional regression has deepened, the clergy of every denomination have been increasingly thrust into a panicky national game of musical chairs, as each minister leaves one disappointed congregation only to be eagerly snatched up by another in the false hope that this new one will be better than the last, who, in the meantime, has now found a new opportunity to be a displacement focus by a congregation that had become disaffected with its previous minister, presently about to take the place of the first, and the anxiety still unabated and the focused issues still unresolved. That's American religious life today, irrespective of denomination. This game is not confined to the world of religion, of course. It is played equally well with coaches, CEOs, school superintendents, police chiefs, and place kickers in the National Football League. <laughs> See, on that, what this Bowen theory and all has taught me is... Let me think how to put this. As you may know, when you get cold, it will show up in your extremities. And when a football team is anxious, it will show up in the place kicker. One of the keys to the anxiety of a, of a football team is the place kicker missing more things he should have kicked. Well, that phenomenon will show up. You see, I've learned that this is true about all institutions. Institutions have their vulnerable spots. If there is a systemic problem in a church, it's likely to show up in a choir. In a religious, in a synagogue, it's likely to show up in a religious school. In a law firm, in the litigation department. In a hospital, in the intensive care unit, and so on. It tends to be the big budget item, which also tends to be the, mo the emotionally significant area of life. So that's what the place kicker is. I think it's possible that the skyrocketing divorce rate is also related to the blaming, though that has leveled off, and it hasn't increased much in the last five to seven years. It's kind of leveled off. But that seemed to me, as it was increasing, just an enormous amount of blaming. Let me see if I could give you an example of the way the media come into this. The media are focused on pathology. They are not focused on strength. And they fit into the victim blame displacement game. So that I remember many years ago, there was a big recession in California, 
and they showed a PhD mechanical engineer pumping gasoline. He had lost his job. He couldn't keep up the payments on his house. His kids couldn't go to summer camp. His daughter would have to drop out of college. And they said, this was because of the recession in California. That's not accurate. It was because this man wouldn't leave California. It's because this man didn't have in the repertoire of his responses the resiliency to go find a job somewhere else. And there he was a victim. Okay, that's a middle to upper middle class white male. But a little later, we now see a lower middle class black female on television standing there with the three darling children and she's being kicked out of her apartment house because landlords had learned that it was worth giving up their low interest mortgage in order to increase rents. But this wasn't Simon Legree who yesterday kicked everybody out of the house. He had announced it six months in advance, given everybody as much possibility and so on. What was she doing for six months? But again, it made it look like the environment had done her in. So what you have to be careful of with the media is they will support the notion that it is the environment that is the cause of people's problems. I have seen two articles recently that are related to this. One having to do with banks, and I'm sorry for the moment, I just forgot the other one. Banks, as you may know, went through enormous problems a few years back, and a study showed that the banks were not done in by changes in the economy, but by poor managing. But everybody wanted to blame the economy. And I just saw a, a similar thing, and I can't remember what it was, on another area of American industry where everybody blamed the environment, and the study showed it had to do with the management. But it's much easier to blame the environment. There are three pet displacement issues in American society today. By a displacement issue, I don't mean a false issue. I mean, rather, a chaotic attractor. Several people here brought up chaos to me. A chaotic attractor. That which attracts to it the anxiety that is free-floating in society. Those three issues are, the first is dietary, carcinogens and cholesterol. The second, is environmentalism, and the third is abuse. They are not false issues, they are real issues, but they attract to them all the anxiety in society, which makes it much more difficult to be objective about them. A little later I'll go into the dietary one further, but for the moment, just to say, it is as though the carcinogen has replaced the communist as society's focus of anxiety. And we look for carcinogens as we used to look for communists. Two years ago, the New York City school system couldn't open because they found asbestos in the rafters of some of the schools. But as a friend of mine who works in the Cancer Institute at the National Institutes of Health said, we know that oncogenesis, the beginning of a malignant process, oncogenesis, is not the same as the clinical entity we call cancer. There are many steps that have to be passed before a given oncogenesis, the beginning of a malignant cell re reproduction, 
Before that becomes what we know as cancer, many things have to happen first that are involved in the response of the organism. But instead, we are in full flight from these subversives that inhabit our world. Nobody asks the other one, which is, if these subversives are so dangerous, how come there isn't far more disease than we have? Nobody reverses it. We are led to believe we are in a roulette world. A roulette world, which means the response of the organism is rather unimportant. And environmentalism, you know those old cartoons that used to show people walking around dressed in a barrel and a sign, the end is coming, it's the end of the world. That same atmosphere has taken over the environment. There are studies always on both sides. And what I have can't show you here, but what I have done in some places is to show a full film of um, Mount St. Helens. You can get this. Um, if I was still functioning as a rabbi today, I wouldn't take my people to Mount Sinai. I'd take them to Mount St. Helens. <laughs> because then you really see the tenacity of life and the capacity for recuperation and regeneration of life. And you see how after everybody predicted, this was the greatest landslide that had ever occurred on this continent. On that continent, on the planet. And there you see, after all the pundits and scientific people said, there'll be nothing for decades, if not centuries. The following year, everything that God created on the third and fourth days of creation popped up. <laughs> it would be very hard to destroy this planet. The planet will survive even if it has to do us in first. And then it'll start over again. But the anxiety in society fuels the environment issue. The third issue is abuse. I'm astounded at the extent to which clergy are willing to get caught up in all of this stuff about clergy abusing. Notice the word is abuse, not seducing. Of clergy abusing parishioners. Leaving out the other side of the vulnerability of clergy. Leaving out the big thing, which is far more clergy have been done in and abused by their congregations than parishioners or congregants have been abused by clergy. There's no comparison. And yet we've allowed this displacement onto those few instances, and they're few given the number of clergy and the number of parishioners or congregants that exist, we have allowed the irresponsibility of members of churches and synagogues to displace onto that issue of abuse, as it's called, and thus avoid what is happening to clergy. The real issue is the abuse of clergy, not the abuse of parishioners. It's the abuse of leaders. And I'll throw out another idea that might make some of you want to leave the room. I, in every situation I've seen or come across or been consulted upon, where a woman has blown the whistle on a man, it's because the man didn't know how to end the relationship. I know of too many situations of trysts and affairs 
that went on between clergy and members of their congregations where they both realized what they were doing wouldn't work, was wrong, and stopped. It gets back to what Murray Bowen taught me about litigiousness and malpractice. It's when the professional gives too much promise. That's a major factor in there. But that's another displacement issue. Again, displacement issues are not false issues. They are issues that are somehow situated to attract all the anxiety. I put it out in a bigger one. Far more women have been done in by passive husbands than by abusive husbands. Far more women have wound up with serious physical illnesses or mental illnesses because they were snookered into taking all the responsibility of the family by a husband who was not helpful, by a husband who was an escape artist. Far more women have been done in by that than by physically abusing husbands. It's a displacement again. It's easier to focus on the physical abuse. It is much more difficult to focus on this very subtle issue of women being stressed and strained by charming passive husbands. And the reason that problem is more difficult to see, particularly in its destructive <coughs> aspect, is because it's a chronic problem. It's disguised by niceness. But chronic problems, even though they're less painful, or they couldn't remain chronic, are more withering. And over the years, they take their toll. There is in uh, the blame displacement is related to the focus on pathologies, which I'll get to later. Um, but I'll just give you one example. Last year, the celebration of the end of World War II, there was a great deal of discussion about the two major tragedies in World War II, the Holocaust and Hiroshima. <coughs> the Holocaust and Hiroshima just stand out. To my knowledge, there was absolutely no emphasis, nor has there been for the last 50 years, or at least very little in one case, on who survived and how they survived. The emphasis has been on the destructive potential of it, not on the recuperative capacity of the human species. I have been a lonely voice in the Jewish community for many years on this. Recently, a few books have been written, and Schindler's List starts to get to it also. And a, you know, there are these Holocaust museums all over America, and one is about to be built in New York City that is going to emphasize not the destructive side, but the life-giving side. Well, you all know about Hiroshima. How many in this room have ever seen a picture of what Hiroshima looks like today? Where did you see it? National Geographic, last August, shows it. The city has quadrupled in 50 years. There aren't too many cities in the world that have quadrupled in the last 50 years. 
There's a million people. There were a quarter of a million people. It has a big sports stadium. It has high rises. It has a little bronze plaque with a bomb dropped. And of course, the victims of the bomb have almost all died out by now, either by age, if nothing else. And you've got a whole new generation, two new generations since then. Well, but we must remember the past, and everybody brings up Santayana. Who, he who forgets the past is sentenced to relive it. But he who can forget the past is also sentenced to relive it. <laughs> what does it take to get past the past? What does it take to move forward and not get stuck in that trauma? Nobody, to my knowledge, has done a study, or has at least released a study, of Hiroshima's capacity for growth and regeneration. And the newspapers, the media, are not attracted to that. They are attracted to pathology. This is a regressed society. That's the way regressed families function. They focus on the pathology, not the strength. Finally, the fourth characteristic of a chronically anxious family, and after this I'll throw it open for comments and questions, is a quick-fix mentality. The key to the chronically anxious regressed family is a low threshold for pain. Regressed families don't deal well with pain. They're hurt. They're easily hurt. They treasure their hurts. They save up their injustices like merit badges on a Boy Scout sash. They love to talk about them. But all pain is always the result of two variables. One is the stimulus and the other is the threshold. At any given time when your pain increases or decreases, it's almost impossible to verify whether the stimulus has changed or the threshold has changed. And now we know that the brain releases analgesic substances, called endorphins, that can reduce your pain. There is, I believe, a connection between pain and motivation. When people are motivated to move on with their life, they feel their pain less. My favorite story on that is about me in 1976. I ruptured my Achilles tendon had one leg in a huge cast all the way up to my hip that kept my leg bent at a certain angle so that the tendon would come back together again. And I walked around on very painful crutches. But I was also an avid stamp collector in those days, and every 10 years there's an international exhibit that avid stamp collectors would go anywhere for. So it was in Philadelphia. I crutched my way into a taxi cab, crutched my way onto a train, crutched my way into this armory, crutched around for two hours, came home delightfully exhausted, obviously in a lot of pain in my armpits. I don't think I felt it. The next day, my wife said to me, honey, would you take out the garbage? And I said, how could you ask me to do a thing like that? You know I've got this pain in my Wow, are you insensitive? You It is clear that people who are directed 
feel their pain less. Now let me put that into an interpersonal relationship. The lower your threshold for pain, for another person's pain, the lower their threshold will remain. The more you can increase your threshold for another person's pain, the more chance there is that their threshold will go up, and with it, their motivation to do something. It has to do with distinguishing caring from empathy. Can you get it around to the point that I feel so much for this other person, I'm going to leave them or put them in pain so that they'll be forced to deal with the challenges of life? My own view is that has always been the prophetic element in religion as compared to the priestly. The willingness to put others in pain. To challenge them. But the chronically anxious family avoids pain. It will avoid pain by the blaming. It will avoid pain by looking for techniques all the time rather than dealing with their own personal processes. They always want to know how to manage things. When the chronically anxious, regressed family comes in for counseling, they want to know how to manage conflict, how to manage money, how to manage sex, manage illness, manage children, manage teenagers, manage parents, manage in-laws. They want a quick fix answer to all their problems. They want more than speed, they want certainty. The chronically anxious family or society that focuses on pathology also focuses on certainty. The effect on leaders is that leaders are not transformed by their experience. What's the difference between a hack and a professional? They might, both might do what they do with polish, but the hack is not transformed by his experience. Where leaders or therapists or consultants focus on administrative, managerial, and technical solutions, giving people advice on quick fix ways out of their problem, then the leader does not grow from his or her own encounter with the problems of others. How does this show up in American society? The chronically anxious family. Here's the opening paragraph. At first glance, it might not seem that the movement towards personally assisted suicide for terminally ill patients and the efforts to amend the United States Constitution in order to limit terms or budget have anything in common. I believe that what they share is a quick fix mentality that seeks technical solutions for problems that have to do with emotional process. I'm putting together here a physician-assisted suicide and amending the Constitution. Term limits, limits on budget. They suggest an inability to deal emotionally with problems. The drug culture is all about avoiding pain. It's not only illegal drugs, it's the legal drugs. There are studies that have shown, for example, in hospital wards,
that there is a direct relationship between the amount of painkillers that are prescribed and the anxiety on the ward. The same thing is true about physicians. Physicians have become far more concerned with relieving pain. That's part of an anxious society, rather than encouraging people to face life. And you're going to see it in the whole genetic program stuff. They're going to find a gene for everything. I've read about genes for every contemporary problem. Schizophrenia, homosexuality, criminality, anger, bedwetting, that's the last one I saw. <laughs> what that leaves out, of course, is that even though there may be a gene for any of those things, with a few exceptions, genes are rarely enough. And that the nature-nurture division is artificial. And that many people can have the genes for things and they don't become manifest. Well, you can't work on your genes yet. But you can work on all the other stuff. On the other hand, the gene is a convenient way of explaining things, and people are seeking genetic techniques for dealing with emotional process. In religion, this shows up with the whole swing toward fundamentalism. The swing toward fundamentalism that is bothering the liberal Protestant churches so much is a search for certainty. And the parallel in science is a search for reductionism, the effort to reduce everything to simple explanations. And the whole world of management does the same thing. Now, summing up all of this, the effect of the chronic anxiety in American society is regression in maturity, it inhibits and erodes leadership. Leaders become less imaginative, they become less decisive, they become more afraid of being alone, they seek to give quick fix, it affects their integrity. And those leaders that have the most capacity for doing something about it, stay away. Leaders are simply not challenged to grow in a chronically anxious society. And what I just described to you, well, I was thinking, I was uh, reading the other day about some of the things that um, Peter Senge has said in the Fifth Discipline book, which is a, to some extent, a major revolution in trying to, he was trying to introduce systems thinking. But for the most part, he, started, he stops with the corporation, and he talks about how CEOs and managers have to be able to see the whole thing. I'm carrying it a step further and saying, you as a manager, as a leader, as a therapist, as a consultant, the whole thing is not just the institution you work in, it's society. And your capacity to be imaginative, in other words, Senge and a whole lot of other people have a lot of imaginative and good ideas. But the capacity of managers to grab hold of those things also is influenced by the emotional atmosphere of the world we live in. And that's really what I was trying to convey this morning. 
and we're all stuck in the same thing. Let's throw it open for comments, questions. I'd be interested in hearing you comment on the airplane crash of Jessica and the response of the media. I'm sorry, on what? The airplane crash of the seven-year-old Jessica in California and then the response of the media. Well, when you say you'd be interested in hearing, what is it about it that you're intrigued by? Well, I'm, as you talked about um, response to pain and wanting to um, fix things, I was interested in how this one child who was flying with a plane instructor and her father crashes and now the media um, and then the raises all these questions about how the parents are raising their well, children. I tried to say earlier that one, and I didn't, maybe I didn't spend enough time on it, that one of the characteristics of a regressed, chronically anxious society is child focus. Right. And so if you've got an issue around a child, the media are just going to gravitate to it. And also the, um, the response of the airline was to, to look at whether they wanted to change all the rules about who can fly and who can't Right, fly. and that's reactive. There's a beautiful example said. of leadership reacting to the reactivity in society. Yeah. Uh, in, in Bethesda, Maryland, where I live, some kid climbed on a mailbox. The mailbox went over and killed the kid. Within the week, every single God-blessed mailbox in Bethesda, Maryland was bolted to the concrete. Well, there's an example. Yes. Sidney J. Harris, who for many years uh, wrote a column in the Chicago Daily News. Um, I remember one year uh, on Father's Day, wrote an article that said, the greatest gift my father gave me was that he gave me someone to live up to. Um, I think his father was a well self-individuated person. Uh, it challenged the best in him. If we're living in a chronically uh, anxious society and um, serving in chronically anxious congregations, and there are a lot of uh, chronically anxious clergy uh, leading. What's the role of support systems, communities of support among leaders so that we can challenge one another? Uh, I mean, today in this process here for two days is part of that. What do you see as the role of that? What I see happen too often in support groups is the anxiety enters the support group and everybody gets into displacement issues. So that, for example, a bunch of ministers might get together and spend a lot of time talking negatively about the bishop <laughs> or about their pill congregations. I have been a um, facilitator to a group of about a little less than a dozen Episcopal rectors that has met every other week I've been with them for eight years, but the group predates me by many years before that. And it's one of the most amazing groups I've seen in being supportive in this way. And the way they do it is they assign 
at the beginning of the year, who is going to present each time? This person must write out their presentation in two pages. Everybody reads it instead of him presenting it orally. And then we go around the room with everybody making comments. 